Who am I? Am I what I do? An artist? An accountant? A teacher? A mother? Or am I what I've achieved? An honor student? An MVP? A winner? Am I the things I've done right? Or am I defined by the things I've done wrong? Am I a saint? A sinner? What about what others think of me? Am I all of these things? None of these things? Who am I? How I identify myself determines how I approach life. If I am what I do, I'll always need to do more and achieve more to find my value. If I am what others say, I'll always try to please people instead of my Heavenly Father. But if I listen to who God says I am and embrace His identity in me, I'll find the freedom to live out all He has planned for me. God calls me His child. He says I am wise and restored, that I'm a brand new creation in Christ. I am chosen and holy and blameless before God. He calls me His masterpiece. I am loved by God. He says I am made complete through the grace and mercy of Jesus, my Savior. And when I see myself the way God sees me, I walk with confidence because I trust the one who answers the question, who am I? That's the question this morning. Who are you? Who are you today? We are studying the book of Ephesians. You're in the first week of it. We're so glad that you're here this morning. My name's John. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, if you're brand new, here's a great disclaimer. The, the regular pastor will be back next week, right? Uh, Scott's here somewhere. Uh, welcome him back. He's been in Ecuador with Compassion International this past week. After a 26-hour flight with no sleep, he's back and in the house, and he'll be back with us next week. We're studying the book of Ephesians. The theme is unshakable identity. And uh, there he is in the flesh walking up. Glad to have you back, Pastor. And I want to ask this question, really, who are you? Because it does have profound implications for how you see your life in Christ and how you live it out. Now, we're perfectly aware that as we talk about this book, that there are people all over this auditorium who are on various stages of trying to figure out where Christ fits in their life. I heard a, a cool story this morning. Someone is here today because he picked up a lost phone. This is crazy. And somehow he starts texting to find out whose this phone is. And Jennifer Thomas somehow knows whose phone it is. And he showed up for church last week. God works in crazy ways. But that's the excitement of knowing that when you are in Christ... That kind of cements the fact that whatever you do, God's called you for a purpose. And so I hope today that as you understand who you are in Christ, it will change the way you think, how you act, and how you behave. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we ask that this morning that you would bring your word alive to us today, that it would make sense to us today, that the messenger would not confuse the message and that your word would be taught clearly and faithfully. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, we're going to cover the introduction to the book. And, you know, that's kind of my deal. I like doing introductions. Let Scott do the heavy lifting. Let me just do the introduction. I'm going to cover like 
two verses today. And you're like, oh my goodness, Erwin, two verses, will we be out by noon? That is the goal, by noon, I'll be out. But it's so funny, last hour, I was preaching, I'm right at the end of the message, and the power goes out, and, and the whole place, this goes dark. Um, apparently, I was done with my sermon, they were pulling the plug. So today, we're going to see if we can make it all the way through this sermon. Now, I want to give uh, a little uh, disclaimer. How many of you are kind of into history you kind of like to go deep. You're into kind of nuance. Raise your hands, all right? Those are the faithful. And those of you who are looking for, you know, something like, like land the plane, give me something that I can take away for today. How many are in that crew? How many would like to see both of those things happen? That is the study of this book because he has so much theological depth in the first three chapters, but in the last three chapters, it's super practical. And so we're going to see both of those uh, a little bit uh, during the course of this series. Now, the other thing I want to let you know is that we're not going to rush through this book, all right? Imagine you have a cup of coffee, and you're just going to sit down, and you're going to take your time as we think through the major themes of this book together. And so we'll finish it sometime. I'll make a commitment that Pastor Scott will finish this book in the calendar year of 2017, all right? Hopefully, maybe by the summer sometime. But I want to tell you, uh, I know he's going to preach a great series, but I'll tell you, there are people who have written books on this stuff. And I want to tell you, if you want to go deep, here's one of the f best commentaries ever written on the book of Ephesians. It's by D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. This is volume one. It's chapter one, and there's six of these. I have them all. So if you want to go a little more in depth, just see me, and you can uh, check that one out. The other thing I want to suggest that you do is that you take the time to study that book with us, right? Don't just wait till uh, pastor delivers the goods every Sunday morning. Why don't you commit to studying the book of Ephesians? We give you some discussion questions, but in maybe your quiet time, at least a couple times, you're like, read ahead. And here's a book. Uh, it's a self-study guide. If you want to study the book of Ephesians, this is so old. This was like vintage 1980s that you can still get these, um, and you could study it along with us, all right? So that's just a couple of things as we get started. So now we're going to look at the background of the book together. I realize I gave you this much stuff to write, and I'm going to give you this much stuff. And here's for the, the frustrated who cannot write as fast as I can talk. I talked to Ron already. I posted all of these notes online already. They're on the website. So just sit back with your cup of coffee. If you can't get it all written down, it's okay. All right? So the background, who's the author of the book? Now, I love to do a little interaction. You know that if I wasn't a preacher, I'd be a Bible teacher at some Christian school. So who is the author of the book? Paul, not a big discovery here. You go, John, you have an amazing grasp for the obvious. But the bottom line is that Paul wrote this book, but you may not know uh, the, the background. He spent, uh, on his third missionary journey, it lasted four years. By all accounts, he spent two years and three months in Ephesus alone, writing, uh, uh, spending time with them. So he spent on that mission a lot of time uh, with this church, uh, fledgling church in Ephesus. And you see that account in Acts 19. And uh, what happened was he's preaching there in the synagogue. Now, I just want to, you to imagine this. Um, if today, Pastor Scott decided to go preach in the local synagogue, how do you think that'd go over? He'd just show up and start preaching. Yeah, well, that kind of is what happened to Paul, too. He's preaching Jesus, 
in the Jewish synagogue, the religious leaders are not so happy about that. So he's got, after uh, 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 several Sabbaths, uh, after, or after several days, he finally moves his meetings. In fact, uh, he moves it to the hall of Tyrannus. And for two years, daily, he's preaching God's word. Now, that is, a commitment. That, is, that is an evangelistic crusade par none, right? If you think about it, and it's not like he did a couple hours in the evening. From 11 a.m. to 4 p.m., they say that he was preaching God's word. I'm thinking that's the, you know, we think it's a big deal if we show up to like two days of the Harvest Crusade at Anaheim Stadium. Imagine showing up every day and people are coming to faith in Christ. And I thought, is there anything even in modern history that parallels the length of time that Paul spent laying the foundation in Ephesus, and the closest I could think of was Billy Graham's 1949 evangelistic crusade uh, uh, here in Los Angeles. Billy Graham was 31 years old. A bunch of people brought him in there, and he was supposed to preach for three weeks, and it stretched out to six weeks. It started on September 25th, ended on November 20th. Over 350,000 people packed that tent that started at 6,000. They had to make a bigger tent of 9,000 people, and he preached every single night during that crusade. And that kind of launched Billy Graham's career. Over 3,000 people made uh, professions of faith during that time period, one of which was Louis Zamperini. Do you know that name? He was an Olympic athlete who was uh, captured in World War uh, World War two, thank you. See, that's why I need my history buffs. Where are you again, my, my peeps? Uh, and uh, the, he, he, that movie Unbroken uh, came out of that, uh, that story there. And so that's Billy Graham's story, but imagine Paul, the faithless. It wasn't three weeks, six weeks. It was two years, and he spent time with them. And then four or five years later, when he's in prison in Rome, he writes this book, uh, to the Ephesians. And we'll talk about whether it's just the Ephesians or some other folks as well. And I was doing the math. Most people think he was 65 years old when he wrote the book, but when he's spending uh, time with the Ephesians, he's in his late 50s. And I thought, I can relate to this. I, he, I'm about the age that Paul was when he was writing to the Ephesians. I'm, I'm younger than 65, by the way, just for those who don't know. And uh, so, the idea is this is at the end of his ministry career, or so to speak. Now, some historical background. What do we know about Ephesus? Well, we know it's a commercial center. It was kind of the big three in its day, uh, Alexandria in Egypt, Antioch in Syria, and uh, Ephesus in Asia Minor. It's like Chicago, New York, and L.A. It's, it's the hub uh, of commerce in, the, in Asia Minor, like the big national bank is there. Secondly, it's a cultural center. Um, so there's these big open-air theaters that will hold 25,000 spectators, and it's also a religious center. So uh, there you can see one of those open-air theaters there, but uh, the Temple of Diana was there. Have you ever heard that concept? Temple of Diana, that's the Roman name. Uh, the Temple of Artemis, that's the Greek name. It's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and you see some of the pictures there, and we know about that from Acts chapter 19, verse 35. And of course, we know nasty stuff happened in the Temple of Diana. They used prostitution as a religious practice, and uh, it was all kinds of center of idolatry. In fact, there was a, a, a silversmith that was making idols, and so they manufactured these uh, silver idols that were sold, and so commerce 
was brisk at the temple. And so that was Ephesus' commercial, cultural, and religious center. Now, the context of this writing, what's going on in the world on a broader, you know, kind of a broader scheme? What's going on in Rome at the time? Do you remember any? Who, who's, who's kind of the, the big dog in Rome at that time? His name was? Well, a guy that, like, toasted Christians for a hobby. Nero, yeah. Nero, this is in AD 50. Nero's persecuting Christians. And everything that's going on in the Roman area is Christians are getting blamed for everything. And so it's important that, that as that's rippling out, maybe the Ephesian churches, is this going to happen to us? In fact, could there be persecution for us? And so Paul also gently reminds the Ephesians that you got to see life from a heavenly perspective. But this idea that Christians getting blamed for everything, that Nero who had kind of sent that message I don't think it's too far from what happens in our culture today. Oftentimes, Christians are accused of, uh, what's wrong? Oh, these crazy Christians there. And you can fill in all the adjectives describing how some people view Christianity today. Next, I want to talk about some fascinating facts. This is all under background still. There are 35 verses in the book of Ephesians that are the same as Colossians. So if you're reading Ephesians, you go, I think I've heard that before. Check over Colossians, then the 35 times you're going to see a very similar verse. There's only 155 verses in Ephesians, and it's amazing how much has been written about this singular book. Probably Ephesians and Romans, the two keystone books of, of Paul's writings. Now, it's also one of the prison epistles. Paul wrote four uh, of his epistles while he is imprisoned in Rome. Do you remember what the other ones were? They may take a wild guess, a little Bible answer man time. Name one of the other three, survey says. Philippians is one of them. What else? Colossians, and then a little tiny book called Philemon. You win. And so uh, he's, those were all written during that time. The other thing in the book of Ephesians, he liked the number seven. In the, in the first chapter, you're going to find these seven spiritual blessings. Watch, now Scott will probably come up with eight next week, but I think there's seven, all right? Um, chapter four, there's seven unities in the body of Christ. In chapter six, the seven pieces of the spiritual armor of God we find in Ephesians six. He likes sevens. Uh, there are 27 distinct doctrines in this book, but the interesting thing is they're all mentioned in other books as well, but it's, it's a summary of many, many of the doctrines. We think of Romans as being that doctrinal book, but Ephesians is as well. And some have called it the Grand Canyon of Scripture. And I think that's a great description because you can go really deep. You can stand at the Grand Canyon and look at the beauty and the majesty of the Grand Canyon, but you really get to know the Grand Canyon if you've ever hiked down that Grand Canyon and uh, all that there is to mine in the Grand Canyon. Similarly, we can mine uh, the book of Ephesians. The other thing that I think is interesting is when certain words are used, and it kind of represents a flow. So if I were to just give you a flow, a general flow, think of the words sit, walk, and stand. If you go to Psalm 1, you see those same three words, bless the man who doesn't walk in the, uh, stand in the way of sinners, sit in the seat of scoffers, uh, but his delight is the law of the Lord. In the same way here, in the first three chapters, it talks about sitting. Where do we sit? Our position in Christ, Ephesians 2, 6, raised up together and made to sit together in the heavenly places. He's going to spend three chapters cementing the fact that you're positionally found in Christ. And we'll talk more about that a little bit later. Then chapters 4 and 5, walk. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling which you were 
called, uh, that you were called, Ephesians 4.1. And then stand, Ephesians 6.11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Sit, walk, stand. Our position in Christ, our life in the world, and then our attitude in spiritual warfare. So those are some, uh, some fascinating facts, but bottom line is what's the theme and purpose of this book? Well, we've identified this series as our unshakable identity, and we're going to come back to that over and over again. And in that, we're going to understand that our position in Christ is evidenced by all the spiritual blessings you have. Now, I'm going to take a deep breath. I want you to think about something here for a moment. How many of us go through life and we see what's happened to us and we kind of forgot about what God has done for us, right? It's a natural inclination. We just spent six weeks studying the book of Job going, whoa. By the way, my takeaway from the book of Job is, I'm so glad I'm not Job today. Please, Lord, don't let me have a Job experience. I'm kidding on one hand, but in another part, I'm saying, you know what? Stuff doesn't go the way we planned. And if we live our life based on the circumstances of life, not in the bedrock of who Christ is in your life, you'll oftentimes be disappointed because life, life doesn't always work out as we've planned. But this book brings us back to those foundational principles of who we are in Christ. The interesting thing about most of Paul's writings, he's oftentimes going to correct something that is messed up, right? Um, so like the Corinthian church, were they the epitome of a church that had it together? No, I mean, there's all kinds of problems. So he's writing to them about confronting quarrels and division in the church. How about Galatians? We studied that book, remember? Galatians, he's confronting the problem of legalism, all right? Uh, in 2 Thessalonians, he's dealing with confusion and fear. In First and 2 Timothy, he's, he's, uh, Timothy lacks confidence. In Colossians, he deals with the false doctrine of Gnosticism. But in Ephesians, he doesn't have it. He's not poking you. He's not prodding you. He's saying, hey, deal with this. He doesn't do that. And I thought, isn't this awesome? In all the 50 years of the history of our church, I think is, is the best time for us to teach through the book of Ephesians. Because quite frankly, friends, we're enjoying a pretty good run here right now. There's not big divisive doctrinal issues where, you know, the... Uh, the cessationists aren't arguing with the continuationists about, you know, the spiritual gifts, and we're not arguing about what style of music is from heaven or from the netherworld or, you know, uh, we're just not embroiled in that stuff. Here's an amazing thing. The elders actually like the pastors, and the pastors like the elders. What a concept. We actually get along. There's a staff here that works together. I'm, I'm so proud of this team that we get to be a part of. It's a good time, and I think this is the perfect time. And so I want to ask you, what would Paul have written, if he was writing today, what would he have written to ABF about? I think it's the book of Ephesians. Substitute Ephesus and put in, you know, Agurah Hills, and take it to heart, because I think this message is uniquely timed for our uh, purpose in history as well. The other thing is because he's not pointing out doctrinal error, sometimes Paul is like this, right? 
lightsaber. This is a lightsaber. Can you see it? Lightsaber. And he's vanquishing, you know, doctrinal foes, right? Right? He's, I know, that's lame. I, you don't see Jedi in that, do you? Huh? Okay. Maybe Darth Vader. Anyway, instead, imagine he's got this paintbrush, and he's just painting this portrait of a church. Not a perfect church, but a portrait of what a church can be when it gets the idea that this is who you are in Christ. And because of all those blessings, this is how you get to live. That's where we're headed over the next several weeks and months. And so I think the key idea is that we have this unshakable identity, and because of it, it should affect the way we think. It should affect the way we behave. It should affect what we choose to do. It should change our priorities. Now, has anybody ever seen an iceberg? You've been on a, a, a cruise, maybe to Alaska, and you've seen an actual iceberg. You've been up close to one. All right, so when you're, when you're near those, you've got to be careful because what you see above the water is about 10%, and 90% of what's underwater you can't see. That's the way the book of Ephesians is set up. The first three chapters are, are what's underneath the water. It's the foundation. It's the beliefs. And if you look at this chart we're going to put up there, it's the doctrines and the beliefs that are the foundation. But what you see is the duty and the behavior, all right? The duty and behavior. Go ahead and put that chart up there, would you? And so you see doctrine and belief and duty and behavior. So what's below the water level is what you believe about who you are, what you believe about yourself, what you believe about a whole bunch of things. That's why Proverbs says, as a man thinketh, so is he. So how you think about these things is going to affect how you live out those biblical truths. Now, I put the rest of the things in your notes pretty easy for you to follow. The church, chapters 1 through 3, it's about our calling as a church. Chapters 4 through 6, it's its conduct. And so you're going to see this. And so for those of you who the, who the history kind of theological fans, it, there'll be plenty of practical stuff, but that's emphasis on the doctrine or the belief system. And then we'll get to chapters four, five, and six later on this spring. And there are some just famous chapters. There's a whole mini series in just Ephesians 5. We talk about marriage and parenting and all those things. Then theologically, we see in chapters one through three, your position in Christ. Chapters four through six is your practice through Christ. Then the focus, the first three chapters are this vertical relationship between you and God, right? And chapters four through six is the horizontal relationship. How many of you have ever had issues with someone in just a very practical way? You, you, you've, ever, you've ever had an issue with someone in the world? I'm looking for nearly every hand to be raised. This is not a trick question. Of course. That's why when we get to Ephesians 5, once we've laid the foundation, he's going to talk about what healthy relationships look like in the family and in marriage. That could be a whole nother series right there. And so uh, then we see the roles, God's accomplishments in the first three chapters, our assignments in the next three chapters. And then the key phrase, you know, I, you know Scott and I didn't confirm this, but I think this, the key ideas in the first three chapters is this idea of spiritual blessings. Chapter 1, verse 3, we'll pick it up next week. But in the next three chapters, it's all about the walk. You know, not just talking about it, but walking it. What's the walk? Walk worthy of the calling, chapter 4, verse 1. Uh, in love, chapter 5, verse 1. Carefully and wisely, chapter 5, verse 15. And then lastly, what about the believers? The believers' privileges, 
and then the believer's responsibilities. Interesting enough, in the first three chapters, there's no commands. There's no, you got to do this. But wait till you get to the next three chapters in four, five, and six, 35 times he gives you an imperative. In other words, do this. Don't just listen to this. Go do this. Don't just be hearers of the word, be doers of the word, it says in the book of James. So all that fits under the background and that little chart. Now, let's get to the text. Two verses, that's what we're covering today. Um, by the way, I realize as I was studying this, I've been, I've been, I studied Ephesians quite a bit in the last few weeks, but I spent a lot of time studying Paul. And everybody has favorite biblical characters. Paul has not been my favorite biblical character because I'll tell you next week, uh, Pastor Scott is not going to be happy with Paul because he gives him one very run-on long sentence. It's the longest prayer with no commas, periods, nothing. And he's going to have to figure that all out. I saved that for you, all right? But here's something else about Paul. Sometimes when Paul speaks and you hear about Paul and what he does, does he come across as this really caring, loving, considerate, kind of pat you on the back kind of guy? No, no. What does Paul come across like? We're back to the lightsaber. I mean, he's like, boom, you got to do this. You got to get in the game. You got to, you know, and it's like he's a sumo wrestler on, you know, theological steroids, right? That's an interesting thought. Anyway, he's intense, right? And so what I love about this, it's not the Paul you normally see. It's more of the Paul like, hey, hey, brother, let me remind you of some things. And he's not like poking you in the chest. What he's doing is saying, hey, 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 remember this stuff. It makes a difference. And so he starts like he does 13 other times in the books that he's written. He says, Paul's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So introduction, we see Paul's credentials in chapter 1. Verse A, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Now, what are his credentials? He had this twofold authority. First of all, he is an apostle, a sent one, all right? He's handpicked by God, and we know he was handpicked by God because if we read Acts chapter 9, he has this remarkable conversion experience on the road to Damascus. And if those are words that you don't understand or you've never heard, you go, what? what? Damascus Road? Read Acts chapter 9. Just write Acts 9 in your notes and go and read that this week. And you'll see how he went from being a candidate to be a member of the highest Jewish court, the Sanhedrin, to being a Christ follower from persecuting Christians, becoming the major evangelist, church missionary of all time. He's an apostle. Did he do it on his own? No, he did it by the will of God. God wanted him and he plucked him out and said, Paul, you're going to do this. It changed his life so radically that it, the world, because of Paul's conversion, was forever changed. It wasn't his initiative. God plucked him out. I want to ask you, are you someone that God has plucked out and says, I want you to do this? Maybe some of you have had that experience. You thought you were going this way. Your career was headed this way. You're going to do this thing. And God said, mm, not so fast. I want you to do this thing. And you go, oh, what? No. And you kind of maybe pushed God away for a while. See, Paul didn't push back. When he literally saw the light, it was such a game changer for him. 
what will it take in your life if God goes, I want you. I want you. I've got a plan for you. Um, I've been doing this kind of thing for over 40 years. Now, now, Grandpa's talking to you just for a second here. Just bear with me. I get it. I'm not going to tell you something from the 60s, but I'm going to tell you this. I've learned something. When God wants me to do something, sometimes He gives me a heads up, but most of the time I got no warning. It's like, you got to do this. You got to move now. It doesn't come out in this sequential, well-thought-out process. Every move I've made in ministry, God was unmistakable. He says, it's, it's time to leave. It's time to move on. Why else would a guy who's loving living in Huntington Beach get moved to the land of the frozen chosen of Minnesota? That, is not, that does not make sense. See, now Scott's deal makes sense. He gets rescued from the hinterlands of Chicago and comes to the promised land here in California. Oh, no, no. Irwin, you have to leave Huntington Beach and you get to go hang out in Edina, Minnesota. Edina, Minnesota, a sub, well, southwest suburb of the Twin Cities. And I thought, okay, I can do that. Paul did like a three-year missionary journey. Three months turned into three years, turned into 14 years I was in Minnesota. Do we have a word from the Lord? God bless you, Pastor. No. Some of you are from the Midwest, and I'm not disparaging that. But man, that wasn't my plan. That was never my plan. But what I want to be always is in the palm of God's will. God, if that's what you want, that's what I want. And if I go through my whole life and I could just say, Lord, I went where you called me. I did what you asked me to do. And I was obedient. That's a good day for me. It's going to be a good day for you. If you can just remember that God has a plan and a will for your life. By the way, I think we mess it up. That's a whole nother sermon about will of God versus wisdom of God. Most of you are praying for God's will. You know, there are only five times, six times in Scripture where it says this is God's will concerning this for you. What most of us need is what James says is, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously without reproach. So most of us should be praying not for God's will. He's, he's revealed his will. What you need is God's wisdom to make decisions within this broad context of all this being part of God's will. So that's his twofold authority. He's an apostle by the will of God, and his singular allegiance is in, in, in Christ Jesus, to Jesus Christ. Now, who's his congregation? Who's he writing to? Paul's congregation, one, uh, verse 1, second part, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Underline saints, underline faithful, underline in Christ. First of all, who were they? The traditional view is he's writing to the church in Ephesus. Now, not so quick here because in the oldest manuscripts, the words to Ephesus, is not, they're not in it. It's not in the oldest manuscripts. Oftentimes, there was a, uh, an attachment that said, who is this letter going to? And so, some people think that uh, it, he wasn't just writing to the Ephesians. It's a circular letter. It's meant to be written to a group of church churches. Some think that Paul's referring to this letter in Colossians 4.16 that originally it was going to Laodicea. Uh, 
And why they don't think this is to the Ephesians church alone is because it's pretty impersonal. There's, it's not gushy and, and heartwarming. Uh, he, you know, when he left Ephesus, he's crying. The elders are crying. So some think that maybe the tone here is too formal for it just to be written to the uh, uh, church in Ephesus, especially if a guy spent between two and three years with them. So my view is a hybrid. I believe it was written to the church in Ephesus, but it was intended to be circulated to other churches in Asia Minor, just like when we studied the, the churches in Revelation, those seven churches, that was meant to be passed along. And the reason he didn't put terms of endearment to them, if he knew he was going to pass it along, he didn't want those other churches to feel bad because they were left out or singled out or people weren't identified, and so it was more general in tone. Now, what were they? Well, they, they describe them as saints, set-apart ones. It's the same word for the word holy that's used in chapter 4, verse 1, and it's this idea that if you're a saint, you are set apart. Now, my question to you today, how many of you are saints? Raise your hand. Now, some of you are not raising your hand because you combine saint with the idea that saint has to be perfect or holy, and you're not so holy. In fact, some of you are going, wait, wait, you can't be a saint. Doesn't some religious body have to like, you know, oh, now you're a saint like Mother Teresa? No, all Christians are saints. We all have a new nature in Christ. In fact, that's why in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, it says what? That we are a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new, right? And so we are saints. So the answer is, how many of you are saints? If you're a Christ follower, you get to be a saint. Now, the question is, do I live like I'm a saint? Okay. I wasn't sure I wanted to share this, but are there times where it would have been better to take the old ABF sticker off the back of your car? Just wondering. Just wondering if any of you have had a moral conflict. Don't answer me publicly. Just write to Pastor Scott and confess. Yeah, there are some times we don't act like saints, right? And you got that little sticker back there and you go, oh, that was not my best, my best self. That wasn't, that didn't represent Jesus very well. And so I, um, I told you that um, recently, I think I told you, I can't, I can't remember if I told you this, but I'll tell you. Um, I, I recently, um, for the first time ever while I was playing golf, and I like to play with people who don't know Jesus a lot of times because, you know, that's great evangelistic opportunity. I was offered weed for the very first time about three weeks ago. No, I didn't sample it, but I did invite the guys, and I hope they, I think they're going to play in our tournament. So that's going to be interesting. I'm going to pair them up with, you know, Jeff and Marie and let them lead them to Christ. All right. Sometimes um, we don't act like saints, right? And we sometimes uh, act like we're somebody else that we're not. And when that happens, I want you to be reminded of Ephesians. You're going to see it in the first three chapters. This is who you are. And because this is who you are, then therefore this is who you and how you live. All right? Um, and thirdly, or secondly, they're, they're faithful. The idea of faithful. They're not just saints, they were faithful. At times, I don't feel so great about being faithful. Sometimes I go, oh, Lord, why do I have to do this? And some of you are like that as well. But you know what? Half of faithfulness is just waking up every day saying, Jesus, I'm giving this day to you again. I'm giving this day to you again. And then thirdly, they're in Christ. So the key to their faithfulness is that that faithfulness was in Christ Jesus. 
Fifty times Paul writes in Christ or in him in, the, in his epistles. Thirty-five of them are of some version of that are in the book of Ephesians. Eleven times just in chapter one. And so we are in Christ. We're connected to him and we're connected to each other. Verse two, Paul's commendation. We're going to land the plane here. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, he does that introduction so many times. Grace and peace to you. Grace, God's unmerited, undeserved, and unexpected favor. You know, grace, I love this definition, is getting what we don't deserve. Grace, forgiveness, love. Now, that's different from mercy, which is not getting what we do deserve, which is separation from God and punishment. And so, he says, I, I'm extending grace to you, church in Ephesus, to you, ABF, and peace, that shalom, that reconciliation with God. It's a byproduct of His grace. When you have the grace of God extended to you, then you're going to be able to have peace with God, peace with God. And so, he used that in all 13 of his salutations. It's a byproduct of grace. So, what's our conclusion today? There are three takeaways. First of all, let me remind you, you are in Christ. And next week, we're going to see all the blessings that result from that one fact that you are in Christ. Number two, I want to get, have you sigh a bit of relief. Guess what? You belong to a body. You belong to something bigger than yourself. You are in Christ, and because of that, you are together as a church. Wherever you find yourself in the spiritual journey, we're doing it together. If you're over 50 years, of old, years old, you know of an old-time series called The Lone Ranger. If you're under 50, you don't even know what I'm talking about. So here's The Lone Ranger. Some of you are Lone Rangers. You just do church by yourself. You're not connected to anybody. Others of you are like the proverbial guy who sits alone in his dark apartment playing video games by himself. You're just unconnected to anybody. And what I want you to do is to realize that you're not called to be an oak tree. Look at this picture. You're not called to be an oak tree where, you know, just, you know, you're one solitary tree all by itself. What you're called and what we're called as a church is to be like redwood trees. Notice how those redwood trees are never found by themselves. They're always in community. They're always connected because those roots don't go deep like the oak tree, but they go uh, kind of this way, uh, horizontally, connected together. We need each other. We need you. We need you to realize that you're all part of something here and every gift is needed. I was talking to someone recently where they were telling me that, you know what, you can get good podcasts and good preaching and we get, and they were quick to say, and we get that here. But what I'm looking for, he said, is community. I'm looking to connect and I gotta tell you right now, if you've been here and you've been kind of an isolated oak tree and you want to become a redwood tree today, I just encourage you, just call me, email me, text me, and I'll help you connect with other believers. Right now, I have 23 people in my life group. It's too big. We need to kind of branch out. But there's room for you at our table. And there's lots of groups that would love to have you at their table. We belong to a body. And then lastly... Let me give a reassurance. He describes the Ephesians as faithful. 
And so my, my takeaway is that, you know what, He's faithful even when we're not. Let me pause here for a moment. So many times, I think people come to church and they kind of got, got through life and they kind of got beat up, right? And they come here and they're just looking, they're just looking for someone to be able to connect with and they're kind of ashamed and embarrassed by something they did. And the good news of the gospel from Hebrews 10.23 says this, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. He's faithful even when we're not. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Lord, as we, as we pray right now and we think about what You're doing in our lives, I just pray, Lord, that that we would remember the fact that who we are in Christ does define us. Who we are in Christ defines us. It, it, it changes the way we think about who we are. We're not lone rangers. We are in Christ, and because you've done the heavy lifting, we receive all the benefits of being a child of the King, being redeemed, forgiven, loved. Ephesians 2.10, we are your poema, our poem, our, our, your workmanship. And so today, Lord, as we leave, maybe there's someone who's just felt a little isolated and just, uh, just wants to be prayed for. I don't even know exactly what to pray, but I do know this. You need to be connected here. And we want you to be connected here. And maybe for some of you, you've gone through religious services for a long time and you felt a lot of guilt, but you haven't felt a lot of grace. The good news of the grace message of Ephesians, Christ, Christ is doing something in you. And you don't have to do it. He's done it. He's faithful when you're faithless. Who you are becoming is more important than what you've done in your past. And today, if you just want to be reminded of that, that great truth, and you're saying, yeah, I needed that today, would you look up at me? You're saying, oh, I'm so glad that I'm forgiven. My past doesn't chain me to an uncertain future. Anybody? Just look up and look down. Okay. Anybody else? Okay. Remember, over and over, ABF, we want to be about grace, not guilt. Jesus loves you. End of the discussion. Today, if you don't know what that means and you would like to talk more about it, there'll be some of us around. Just come and say, hey, I want to hear more about that story. You see, you have an unshakable identity. And that identity is found in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Who are you? You are in Christ. You are beloved. You are forgiven. You're loved. You are His workmanship. You are a son of the living God. You're a member of the body of Christ. And what are you? You are faithful. 
you're faithful. Live as faithful Christ followers this week. All grace, no guilt. Have a great day. We'll see you next week. Thank you.